Well, good morning. My name is Jared Irvine. I'm the pastor of junior high. And the reason why I'm up here this morning is because our dear pastor John is still recovering from pretty extensive shoulder surgery. And so he's not fit enough to be up here this morning. But I do have good news to report. He is doing better and better. Right, Shelly? He's doing better and better. Less pain. That's good. But it's a long, it's a long process. It really is. It's a long recovery. So continue. Thank you for your prayers, but continue to pray for him and for, of course, Shelly. And I believe, hopefully I'm not speaking out of turn, I believe he's back next week. Is that right, boss, Tim? So we're excited um, that he'll be back. One more? Okay. But it is very extensive shoulder surgery, so be praying for him. If I was to, I wouldn't do this to poor John, but if I was to mention to him, hey, you want to play some, you want to play tug of war right now? Like that would, it would cause, because of his shoulder, it would cause a lot of, you know, mental pain, I'm sure. Thinking of grabbing the rope and pulling and have someone trying to pull his arm off, like that is terrible. But if you guys, I'm sure most of you know uh, or have heard of the game of tug of war. Yeah, you've probably played. Uh, It's a very simple concept. There's one rope. There's at least two people, usually two teams of people, and they grab the rope and they try to pull to the other side. (laughs) It's not that hard, yeah. The hard part is the other team wants to pull to the other side. So it's like, I I, want to go north. I don't like the south. By the way, this is not a Civil War reference, but if (laughs) I want to go north, I don't want to go south, but so I'm going to pull everyone to the south because I think the north's the best. So I'm going to pull everyone over there. And the south, they want to go north, or they want to go south. They don't want to go north. And so they want to pull everyone over there. And the winner, of course, is the one who can make the other team do what they want to do and not what the other team wants to do. And that is the winner. So if, you're, if you are the captain of your tug-of-war team and you're picking people, and yes, in, in this PC world, you're profiling. You're looking for certain attributes. Probably the attribute you're looking for is just like, just brute strength. You want someone who has got muscles on top of muscles, who maybe eats like raw meat. They're like ferocious looking. And like, that guy, I want him. The five foot nothing, 100 pound nothing dude, little pipsqueak of a fella. Cute kid, not going to be picked first for tug of war. Um, now, not all is lost for that kid, though, because in soccer, the best soccer player in the world, five foot seven, 160 pounds. Could get picked first for soccer, definitely not going to get picked first for tug of war. You are looking for incredible hope. That's basically your profile. And so if I'm picking first, if I'm picking first in the draft, I'm taking Tim Ports. <laughs> easy, easy decision. My alternate choice would be Tim Allen. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> the other Tim went up to you. But he would dominate, right? I mean, yeah, you've seen the guy. Anyways, but the reason why I mentioned this is like, you could, we're going to use this kind of as an analogy this morning, is that tug of war could be an analogy for life sometimes. That in human relationships, in human conflict, there is tug of war. You know, I have my way, and I want to do my way, and I'm going to go this way. But someone else, there's always got to be someone else who doesn't want to do that, and they want to go their way. And so you're pulling to go your way. They're pulling to go the other way. And if anything, tug-of-war teaches us is sometimes, you know, 
you have to dig in and eventually you're going to win sometimes and you're going to make them come over to your side. And the winner is the one who doesn't give up, who doesn't give in, but can make the other person do what you want to do. And that is the winner. But where is love in that? Because right there, that power is defined as my strength, my will over your will, over your strength. But where is love? Well, this morning we are in 1 Corinthians and we're going to look at the cross of Jesus Christ and we're going to look at how the cross of Christ turned the concept of power upside down, that it redefined it. That sacrificial love we see now is described as the power of God. So we're in 1 Corinthians 2.2 this morning. That's our central text, which is, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. To get some context to this, I'm going to read a couple of verses uh, starting up in 118. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I'm going to drop down to 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then again, 2-2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so Paul, he's using a bit hyperbole. He's not saying like, I didn't know anything. I didn't even tell you my name. I didn't even want to know your name. All I want to talk about is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's not, it's, what he's saying is my central message that when he came to the Corinthians, that his central message that he preached to them was Jesus Christ, and specifically his crucifixion. Now, Paul, he didn't come to them trying to wow them with intellectual, metaphysical speculations, which the Greeks probably would have really liked. They would have really devoured. They would say, yeah, give us more of that kind of teaching. But Paul didn't preach that kind of message. What he came to do is he came to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, which the Greeks thought was completely absurd, was foolish, was weak, was not a victory, it was lost power. How can you preach that, Paul? So it was not a popular message. And I think this is because sometimes we don't understand how the message of the cross or the word of the cross would be absurd, would be crazy talk to some people, because we're so far removed sometimes from actual the practice of crucifixion and what it meant. I mean, how many of you have ever seen a live crucifixion? Good. Yeah, that would be uh, <laughs> traumatic. So it's like, see counseling, see Tim Allen, he would counsel you. Um, so you wouldn't, you would not, that, yeah, that would be traumatic experience to see someone agonizingly die right? But crucifixion was pretty popular. I mean, it was, it was, Jesus Christ was not the only person crucified in history. And so crucifixion was, was more common. But what crucifixion meant was basically 
If you're looking for what is weakness, you would look at crucifixion. That's weakness. Because what did Rome use it for? Rome used it to show their power, that they're the ones who crucified people. So Rome is the powerful. They're the ones who crucified people. The people who ever gets crucified are the weak ones. They're the losers. They're the defeated. And Rome, they use crucifixion to, to flaunt their power. They would say, we can make you die how we want you to do, and we like to kill you slowly. We like to do it in a very painful way where you, you will physically suffocate slowly over time with, yeah, some nails, and it's a very painful way to die. And, oh, by the way, they crucified people publicly. They publicly humiliate people because they also crucify you naked. So you die in a way you don't want to die. You die in front of everyone, and you die naked. Terrible way to die. And so Rome is saying, yeah, we're the powerful. And also they warn you. They're, you're using it as a warning. Why would they publicly crucify people to tell, hey, you want to be like this guy? They killed a lot of insurrectionists, people who were starting rebellions. You want to mess with Rome? You want to play tug of war with Rome? You want to go heads up with us? This is what's going to happen to you. You're going to end up like this guy. You want to be like him? Then Keep doing what you're doing because you're going to end up on a cross. You're going to end up dying in a humiliating fashion. And that is the power of Rome, as they showed. And so when Paul is talking to this, how is that a victory? Everyone in that time is like, I don't understand how you say that's a victory. That looks like weakness. That looks like a crippling loss and a terrible defeat. And yet Paul is preaching that it's not only a victory, it's the power of God. Wow. And so this whole passage is just filled with some profound irony. I mean, even in verse 25, the foolishness of God, as if God is foolish, but the foolishness of God, what you call as foolishness, is wiser than what human beings of the world calls wisdom. And what you call weakness of God is actually stronger than the strength of men, which is, i.e., look at Rome. So, it's this profound upside-down perception that in verse 118, it says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So you have the same thing. You're looking at the same picture. You're looking at the same event, the same man hanging on a cross, and one says that's absurd, that's weakness, that's defeat, and another side saying, no, that's the power of God. That is a victory. That is our triumph. Because by the cross, we were saved. By the cross, we were forgiven. By the cross, we were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's how God saved us. That's how God rescued us. That's how God showed his power was in that way. That he didn't come and wipe everyone out and then save us. He came by sacrificing his life to save us. That's how he did it. And the cross shows the power of salvation, the power of God, and the power of love of God. And so he won the victory by the cross. That's how he did it. And so God defines power. He redefines it. He turns it upside down as now it's not this tug of war way, but it's the sacrificial love way. That Jesus, 
He didn't play tug of war with Rome. But he dropped the rope. He didn't play their game. He sacrificed his life. You see, the crucifixion was not an accident. It was, he was not some misfortunate person. He was not a failed revolutionary. Jesus all along said that it was a sacrifice, which is important, that it's a sacrifice, that he was choosing to do this. In John 10, he says, no one, no one takes my life from me. No one does that. I'm laying it down. He said this far before the crucifixion. It's one thing when you're hanging on a cross, say, yeah, I meant this. But when you're saying it like a couple years before it happens and the whole thing, and it, it, ha it actually happens, then he meant it. That this was supposed to be the way it is. That this was his mission. This is what he came to do. In front of Pilate, he's being, he's being tried and for, for, uh, for insurrection or rebellion, or they think that he's starting some, some revolt. And so Pilate plays his power card. He plays his power struggle. And he says to Jesus, he says, I have the power, basically, to set you free or to crucify you. Your life is in my hands and I can do whatever, you want, whatever I want with it. And Jesus responds to him and, and he says a couple things. One, he says, you would have no power if it wasn't that which is given to you. Second thing, I could call a legion of angels that could come to my side and fight for me. He's like, I could play tug of war, man, and I'm strong. I could take angels and destroy you. But he doesn't do that. That's important to note that. He doesn't do that. He lays it down. He sacrifices his life. That's how he was going to do the victory. And that's what he did. But why did he do it? He did it because of love. He did it for the benefit of you and me, for everyone, for the whole world. Right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the, world, loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's why he did it, for love. And so the perishing is 118. They can't see the power of the cross. They can't see it. They get tug of war. They understand that. They understand the dominant over the weaker. They understand the way that operates. What they don't get is the power of love. They don't get sacrificial love, and they don't understand the cross. They don't understand the heart of God. They don't understand. But for Paul, and for all of us, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God, and the victory that we have in Jesus. And so for him, Jesus Christ and him crucified is so important. It's central of importance. Because it's the greatest act of love. It's the greatest act of love. And Jesus, he didn't just live this love, and it was like, wow, we didn't see that coming. Jesus taught this all along. Not only produced prophesying about his own death, but also telling his disciples that this is what it looks like to be my disciple. That this kind of love that I'm going to show on the cross is the kind of love disciples of Jesus are to live. That he taught the self-denial way. In Luke 9, there are some disciples that come to Jesus and they want to be his disciples. They say, you know, Jesus, 
you live this, this great life. Like if you're going to be a disciple, which is a learner, someone who wants to imitate him, someone who says you're living life in such a good way, like human flourishing, and this is the way to live life. I want to live like your way of life. That's what a disciple is. It says you live the life. I want to live that kind of life. What does it look like to be your disciple? And Jesus says, he tells them how it is, what it looks like to be someone who says, I want to follow Jesus. This is in Luke 9, 23 and 24. He says, if anyone, if anyone were to come after me, which means anyone can, but if you are going to come after me, hear this. If anyone were to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So this self-denial, if you are going to be a disciple of Jesus, he's saying, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, it is first deny self. It's not about you anymore. You may have lived your life for you, but if you're going to follow Jesus, it's no longer about you. You're living for something greater than you. And then he says, follow me. Follow me. And this pick up your cross daily that you don't like, you can't literally die on a cross every day. So what he means is your act of denying self is your cross, is your crucifixion, is crucifying the self, is crucifying your will. It is no longer living for that, but is living for something else. And that is a death. And then, you know, it's nice. Some of these disciples, they don't, they don't always get it, right? They're a little slow sometimes, and that's great because it's just like me and you, right? It's just like us. Maybe I just say me. And then, uh, but these disciples, they're, they're arguing. Jesus was an itinerant preacher. He, he traveled around, so his disciples just followed him around and, and did ministry with him. And so they're, they're, they're having conversations, and they're talking amongst each other. And the Gospels pick this up because it's important. And so they're, they're arguing. They're like vying for, who's the greatest disciple? And so it was like a 12-way tug-of-war match. Like, no, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. And Jesus hears them, and this is how he responds to them. He thought, this is a good teaching moment. Um, and so he says in Mark 10, 42 through 45, he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the nations lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, the disciples. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be the first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, which is Jesus' own self-title, what he called himself. So even the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So he's saying, you, you see the world, right? You see it? They play this tug-of-war thing, and you know who the king is. You know who the powerful ones are because everyone else serves them. That's how the world does it. But you, my disciples, you are different. You are much different. You are the exact opposite of that. Instead of lording it over people, instead of you all serve me, it's I, you, it's the disciples. You, the greatest, is the one who serves everyone else that you lay down your life, that you sacrifice your will for the benefit of others. That that's what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And then he uses for, which is like a purpose statement, for, this is why you should do this, for the Son of Man, which is his own 
title. For Jesus, he's saying, for Jesus came not to be served. He could have done that. He could have played exactly like everyone else, but he doesn't. For he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that means his death, right? He's dying for everyone, the benefit of us, the benefit of the whole world. Paul in Philippians 2, 3, he, um, in, in following, he talks to the, the Philippians about selfishness. And he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Let's read that again. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. That's hard. Or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, because you're going to do that, but look also to the interests of others. And then he says, have the same mind as Christ Jesus, or you could interpret that like, be like Jesus. And then he gets into this famous passage, Philippians 2, 6 through 11. And he, he says that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but that he, made, he emptied himself and being born in human likeness, he became a servant, even and obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so he's saying, is like, he's telling the Philippians, don't be selfish, but look to the interests of others. And they can retort like, why? And he says, because look at Jesus. If you're a, a church of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, look at his example. He emptied himself, that he became a servant, that he died a death that is horrific. Even death on a cross. He didn't just die, but he sacrificed in such a horrific way. The death on a, on a cross. And so Paul uses the death of Jesus uses the example of Jesus as telling the disciples that this is how you are to live. This is what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And so the death of Jesus is so central to Paul. But it's not only because it's like his message of salvation, which it is, but it's the way he views all of life. It's like his interpretive grid. It's his, uh, his guiding ethical principle of how to interpret life. When things come up, how should I act? And he looks to the example of Jesus. And really, you could say 1 Corinthians 2.2 uh, could be an interpretive key to the whole book of 1 Corinthians. And I could go through the whole book and show you, but I'm not going to do that. You're welcome. Um, that would be a lot of time. But, but he, in, in this book of Corinthians, there's a lot of situations that go on a lot of things that are going on in that church. And so Paul pastorally applies the word of the cross. He pastorally, he looks through the lens of the cross and tells the church, this is how you were to act in these situations. And his guiding principle for what they should do is the word of the cross, is the example of Jesus. I'll just use one example because uh, it's such a good summary statement. It's in 1 Corinthians 10.33. And he says, I try to please everyone in everything I do. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And then in 11.1, it says, imitate me as I am imitating Christ. I don't know why there's a chapter break there, but in 11.1, you're like, what is the context when he says, imitate me as I'm imitating Christ. It's 1033, which he says, I don't seek my own advantage, but I seek the advantage of others. 
Because that's what Jesus did. And he's saying, if you, I want you to imitate me and how I'm living. Because how I'm living is I'm living for the advantage of anyone, including the Corinthians that he's writing to. And he's saying, I am, I am doing everything for the advantage of you so that you might be saved. And so that you are to act like this. You're supposed to imitate me in this way because I'm imitating Jesus who didn't seek his own advantage, but sought the advantage of others. And so that's how he lived and how he wants it, us to live. Imitate the sacrificial love of Jesus. So how do we imitate Jesus, imitate this sacrificial life of love in our lives? Well, you're, you're each in, there's so many different contexts, right? You're in 100 million different worlds or whatever. But I'll give a few examples. But think about how do you live a sacrificial life of love in your specific context? But I'll speak broadly here. How do you know Jesus Christ and him crucified in, in your marriage? Marriage is a great arena to practice crucifixion. Let me explain that statement. What I don't, what I, I don't mean like you crucify your spouse. That would be uh, not right. It's like, honey, why do you have the hammer and nails? Pick up your clothes. I won't have to use it. But don't do that. But marriage is a great, because you, you deny yourself. It's such a close combat, if you will. But it's, you, it's a great way to deny yourself that when you said, I do, that you said that you were going to benefit this other person, that you were going to live to make good come to this person. That your life was no longer about yourself anymore, but it's about another. That if marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, which Ephesians 5 says it is, and so if marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, what did Christ do for the church? Christ gave everything to the church. Christ sacrificed his body, his blood, his entire life for the church. And what does the church do in response? The church gives everything back to him. Body, soul, everything. And so if the husband is in the, in the Christ position, if you will, he is supposed to give everything for the good and the benefit of his wife. And the wife is to give everything to the good and benefit of her husband. But so often and too often, it's this tug of war match of this fighting over whose will will be done. But that's not honoring Christ. That's not a picture of Christ because marriage is a living image of the gospel. It's a living image that you can actually preach the gospel, that you show, you display the gospel and your relationship in your marriage. And so if we are being selfish, then you're, you are displaying not the gospel. But if we're sacrificing our will and we're, we're doing everything we can for the benefit of our spouse, then we are glorifying Christ and we are showing the gospel to the world. Now, you don't have to be married to do that. I mean, you have, every single person has important relationships in your life. Whether you have friends, you have family members, you have coworkers, special people in your life. And how are we living sacrificially in those special relationships, in those relationships that we really hold dear? In John 15, 13, Jesus says, there is no greater love than this, that someone would lay his life down for his friends. And so do we, are in our friendships, in our relationships, whatever they are, do they just exist for me? Do they just exist to benefit me? Or am I looking to serve and to benefit my friends? 
to lift them up, to lift up my parents, to honor them in those ways. And so we need to think about, are we living sacrificially in all of our relationships? How do we know Christ and him crucified in our careers? Well, deep down in the human soul, it's a dark place. Um, there is this, Philippians 2, 3 talks about self-ambition, but, there, but self-ambition is a dangerous beast. It's this drive for self-glory. That's just rooted in each and every one of us, that we have a drive to have glory to ourselves. And so we pursue money, honor, reputation, and these sort of things. And the reason why it's a dangerous beast sometimes is because we try to rationalize it or justify it in different ways. This do whatever it takes mentality that I got to get to the top or I got to get to this certain position. I got to make this certain kind of money. I got to have this certain honor and reputation so that people think I'm something or, or whatever it is down deep inside of us. And so is it, are we living for ourselves or are we living to glorify God? When we make decisions, like getting promotions and getting new jobs are not bad things, but are we doing it for our glory? Are we doing it for the glory of God? We have to crucify our our self-will and live for God's glory. How do we know Jesus Christ and him crucified in the church? Well, you're not here for yourself. We are here to serve and to love one another that the church is called the body of Christ. The body of Christ. What did the body of Christ literally do? The body of Christ literally hung on a cross. The body of Christ literally was sacrificed for the benefit of others. And so if we are going to call ourselves the body of Christ, if we are going to call ourselves a Jesus community, we have to act like the body of Christ literally did. We have to act like Jesus did. And what, how did he act? He acted in a sacrificial way, the way of love. And that's so difficult. Love is difficult. And sometimes we, we look at love and it's like this, this cute little thing in this little test tube. But in the real world, love is messy. Love is difficult. Love gets crucified. If you want to look at the greatest act of love, well, that looks pretty messy. That looks pretty painful. Because it is. It is. So that's why we need each other. But there could be an objection. An objection of, does this mean what you're saying? Are you just advocating that we become like proverbial doormats? Do we just let people do whatever they want? You're just saying, oh yeah, do whatever you want, and that's love? No, I'm not saying that. Love must be defined by truth. Can't be separated. Our culture's definition of love is often that, though. It's often just give people whatever they want, and that's love. And if you, if you actually give them something different, or you say that's probably not good for you, you're being judgmental, and you're not being loving. But we say that truth has to be paired with love for it to be true love. There's a, there's a really wise man who has a hurt shoulder. His name's John. He defines God's love as this. He says, wanting God's best for another. And that's exactly right. And that includes truth, that we want God's best for someone. And that's love. And so so this tug-of-war analogy, it works for a bit, but you have to drop it because it breaks down. And at this point, you're like, well, aren't you pulling someone to truth? 
I mean, you say drop the rope, you say don't do tug of war. But the question is, the crucial question is why, if you are pulling someone to the truth, why are you doing it? Are you doing it? Because you can actually come in with truth, but is there love there? You could just want to get another notch in your belly. You could just want to say, yeah, I have power over you. I persuaded you. I converted you. I am the reason why I got you over here. You need to think how exactly how I think. Is that what we're doing it for? To just puff ourselves up so we think that we're knowledgeable or we think we're something or we think whatever. Or are we doing it because we actually care for the person? Because we want that person to know the love of God. Because you would not want them to be separated from God. Is that why you're pulling them to the truth? It has to be because you love that person so much that you are not willing to just let go of the truth or you're not going to hit them over the head, but you want to bring them to the truth because you love them. Love must have a redemptive goal. As Paul says in 10.33, that I do not seek the advantage of myself but the advantage of others, that they may be saved. He's doing it all for redemption. He's doing it all so that they would be saved, that they would know God, that they would know his love for them. But with all that being said, love is still a risk. And you could and probably would, will be taken advantage. People won't respond in the way that you would want positively They'll take advantage of your love, your mercy, your grace. But let me ask you a question, though. Who knows that better than God? God gives and gives and gives and gives and keeps giving, and people don't always respond positively. And people, we love God, and yet we don't always give him the praise, the honor, the glory, the thanksgiving that he deserves. But does that mean he stops giving love, that he withdraws it? He says, you know what? You're not really loving and responsive I want, so, you know, I'm taking my love back. He doesn't do that. He keeps loving. And so that's why we come each Sunday and we praise God. Because his grace and mercy is always fresh for us. Or forgiveness. You know what? You could forgive someone, and guess what? They could do it again. They could say, thank you. Okay, I'll do it again. And then do you withhold forgiveness? Do you stop forgiving? Well, does God do that for us? Does God say, I'll forgive you one time, maybe twice? After that, I'm done. God keeps forgiving. He keeps forgiving. And that's why we said love is difficult. It's messy. It's hard. But Jesus showed us the example. And he keeps loving and he keeps forgiving. But love, I want you to have hope because love is powerful. Love can transform. Definitely can. And I want to use your own example as witness, use your own example. Why do you love God? Why do you love him? Why are you here? Was it because he threatened you with hell? Turn or burn. I would not love God. I would fear him. I would be afraid of him. If that's the only reason why I love God or came to him or came to his side. No, the reason why we love God is because he experienced hell for me on the cross because he died to show his love for me, that he took my sin, my shame, my guilt, my lies, my injustice, my prejudice, 
my greed, my lust, my self-ambition. He took all the nastiness, all the dirtiness, all of that upon himself. And he died for us. That the cross shows the love of God. And that's why we love him. What melted your heart? What gave, gave you that heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone? Was it not because you saw our God high and lifted up on a cross, hanging, crucified for you? And to be separated from him forever, that would be hell. And now here, we're not a perfect community. We're selfish. We have power struggles. We have that. Part of what it means to be a broken human being. But I think if we, if we lift our eyes, and that's why it's so important that we meet together and we keep this community, because if we lift, we need a constant, we're so forgetful. We need to constantly lift our eyes and we need to see, we need to see Jesus and see his beautiful, self-giving love on the cross. And I think at that point, we are a little grip, right? that we don't want to let go. But you see your God dying for you, being crucified for you, loving you in that way, your grip will be relaxed, will be released. And you will say, I trust you because we, got, we put up walls because we can't trust people. How can we trust him? Because he died on the cross that's how we can trust him. That's how we know that he wants what's best for you, that he wants benefit for you. He wants salvation for you. He wants good for you. He wants human flourishing for you because he died for you. And so we can come and we can put down our walls and we can stop our tug of war and say, fine, I'll do it your way because you, I know you love me and I can trust you, that you will always be there and you will always love me. And so we could stop fighting for ourselves and live a sacrificial life of love. Seeking God's best for another. Well, if you don't have a relationship with God, know this is that he died for you, that he loves you. He loves you more than you can even imagine. And he's calling to you. He wants a relationship with you. The cross, if it says anything, it says that he loves you and he wants a relationship with you because he knows everything you've done, and yet he still died for it, because he loves you that much. But God, he's so loving, he won't force his love on you. He won't play tug of war with you. You have to receive it. You have to come to him. But see him on the cross, and be humbled and say, this God loves me. I know he loves me, so I can trust him, that he's going to love me. And he wants what's best for me. And he wants this relationship with me. He's proved it by the cross of Jesus Christ. And so if you haven't and you want to have a relationship, you want to get a relationship with Jesus today, you can come up after service. I'll pray in just a second. And we'll have pastors, elders, and deacons up here. And we want to pray with you. We want to talk to you about Jesus. And we want to tell you about how to have a relationship with him. But for disciples of Jesus, I hope that we beheld Jesus Christ and him crucified this morning, that we are fueled 
a little bit to live this life, even if it's for like this week, and then we come back on Sunday and get refueled, because we need it. We're so forgetful. Because it's so very difficult. And this is why we need each other. We need each other. We need this community. Because, you know, I, we can't do this on our own. And, and we got plenty of examples, plenty of examples of selfish living in the culture, right? I don't need more of that. I got that. I see that. I need more examples of, of Christ-like love, of sacrificial love. And that starts right here in the church, right here with, with us all. And that these words behind me, inspiring Christ-likeness, that when we love each other in this way, that we inspire one another to be like Christ. And we need that inspiration. We need that example. So that when I see other people loving or I experience someone sacrificially loving me, and it's like, well, I want to do that. Because love is dynamic. And so as a community, keep loving and inspiring Christ-likeness. Inspire each other to drop the rope, to stop this tug of war, and live a life of sacrificial love to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let's pray. Lord, we do, we do thank you and we praise you, Lord, for loving us so well, for caring for us, for constantly being right with us, Lord. But Lord, help us. We play these tug-of-war matches. We want it our way or we're afraid to drop the rope. We're afraid because we are afraid of getting hurt. Or... But may we see the example of Jesus on the cross. May we see your love in him and know that you care for us and know that you love us and help us, Lord, to draw close to you and then help us to then love one another as we experience your love. May that inspire us to love one another in a sacrificial way, to show the world the God you are, the God who gave everything, your body, your blood, your entire life for us so that we could have life. We thank you, we love you, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Be blessed there.